welcome to this week's episode of the Structural Engineering Podcast, hosted by Max and Zach. This week, we're talking with Chris Whittle, a project engineer at a construction company. Max and I wanted to start including more than just the structural side of the construction world and got the opportunity to have Chris on the show. Let us know what your thoughts are on the episode and any questions you might have. One other note, if this episode sounds like a badly dubbed film, that's because I had some echo issues we didn't find until after recording. Now I'm going through and re-recording all my questions. May sound like I'm talking to myself. I tried to make them as seamless as possible, but some are still a little jarring. Thanks, Max. Now let's start the show. My name is Chris Whittle. I work for Mark Young Construction as a project engineer. I'm a technically project engineer, level three. Um, the next step is superintendent. Looking forward to that. But I've been with the company for about uh, coming up on two, well, year and a half to two years. I'd have to figure out exactly what. Done uh, two projects for him now in the middle of my second one. Max and I are excited to finally uh, attack uh, physically and uh, more or less <laughs> mentally attack a contractor on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> To kick it off, and maybe for people who haven't worked much with a GC, could you give us your definition of what role the GC plays in a project? Something like the job description you might find? Sure. I mean, as a broad question like that, the uh, the answer is really we go out and get a bunch of specific trades to go coordinate with and build a building alongside. Um, so really, we're going to look at a project and we're going to have to figure out from day one what it's going to take to build this project, whatever it is, building, structure, you name it. And then we have to assemble our team, usually of people that we, we hopefully trust and know to do the work we need to do. Um, and then we go out and we, we do it on site. So if anything goes wrong, it kind of ends up on us, but when it's <laughs> right, it kind of ends up on us too. So it's uh, it's a bit like general is the best way to put it. And I think that's why it's been named that because the, you have to know a little bit about everything, then have specific trades kind of finish out the details for you. That's just the, the broad spectrum of how I interpret it anyway. I've always wondered, do most GCs come from some specific background? Like maybe they're a subconsultant, a framer or something, and then decide they want to oversee the whole thing? Or do they start as this sort of generalist? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple divisions or a couple trade specialties that could lead you to be a GC. But I would never expect a specialties company to become a general contractor. That's a far stretch. But um, if you have a major trade that you've been doing in-house and then you can build upon that and use skills from that trade in other skills uh, or in other trades and departments, that's when you can like evolve and become a GC. But I think generally most GCs uh, are formed from people that have been estimators or people that have been at, a, at another GC. Um, it is a... like pretty specific like department in itself. Um, the fact that you have to be so well-rounded in so many things and then uh, just know so many people as well. That's uh, It would be tough for some people to like get in that role without uh, the, the prior history of the, the like minimum requirements of knowing people, knowing a lot of different things about each trade and, and actually <laughs> then wanting to take on that whole role of a GC. So, yeah. so what, what would you say are the different roles that fit under a GC? You said you're a project engineer. What other roles are there? Yeah, of course, like every company's structured different. We're structured as engineers are kind of the, the entry level and then superintendents run projects. So as an engineer, you work under a superintendent or really I like to say alongside because you have different roles as each superintendent's more in charge of scheduling and uh, subcontractor management. Whereas the project engineers, uh, I hate to say it, more of a paper pusher most times and kind of the, the eyes and ears for uh, things like submittals, RFIs, budgets, um, coordination, but less scheduling and management, more coordination. Uh, as an engineer, I call everybody like you're the bridge of communication between subcontractors, architects, engineers, uh, anybody else that you would have helping you on the project. Um, and then past that, most companies work in a different level where you know, you have engineers and you have superintendents and those are the on-site positions. But aside from that, you probably have office backup. Um, and occasionally engineers are also in the office and aren't always on site. But the office backup would definitely be a contract person that would handle specifically contracts with all of your well, well, contractors that you've hired. And then usually a project manager uh, that would likely have several projects running at one time uh, that is overseeing 
the the scope of each project on a bigger view. So, and then of course you would, you know, a general contractor has like a finance department and then an ownership department and an estimating department. And so oftentimes it is split up into operations versus like office side of things, whatever you want to call that estimating or um, other office work. So calling yourself an engineer, we, oh, most of our <laughs> listeners are engineers. Yeah. It, it, did you get an engineering degree? From so, this? so I didn't, some people do. I, I joke all the time. I'm, I'm uh Chris Whittle, PE, but that's pretend engineer. So <laughs> I, uh, I do not have an engineering degree. Um, most engineers have a, uh, some sort of construction background. Uh, some of them, we have an engineer uh, who has an electrical engineering degree. We've had civil engineers come as project engineers, uh, but most people are a contractor like background or went to construction management school. Um, that's really where that position comes in. Uh, so I think the, the term engineer is actually a little bit funny, uh, but it sounds better than superintendent assistant. Um, so <laughs> it's just a, a matter of having some pride to the job title, I suppose. Of all those people that you described that may decide to get into the GC side of things in their career, who do you think fits the job the best? Like personality-wise, technical skills, what type of person excels at this job? You know, I really like that question because you didn't ask like, what degree fits best or what pathway did you get here? But communication skills are probably the biggest factor here. Um, an effective communicator will be good at this job just because you need to like, remember things, present things. Uh, we run meetings. You need to be personable um, and, and fit your personality into a lot of different situations. Like there's a professional side that needs to be out when you're with engineers and architects and especially ownership. And then you need to be like able to coordinate and, and communicate with your subcontractors on site, which are just a completely different breed and a, a different communication you need with those. So um, I, it's, it's funny because a lot of people do come out of school and uh, of course they hear con commercial construction, project engineer, um, maybe it pays well, maybe the work interested somebody, but they get a, a construction management degree or civil engineering degree, whatever it is, and uh, decide that, they want to try commercial construction and uh, it doesn't really seem to matter where your background came from. Having prior knowledge of construction is great, um, but communication and then really professionalism are, are two of the biggest qualities. So uh, regardless of where your background is, that's like the huge item that I, I would want to see in a good engineer. Do you think there are people that go into this without a lot of background in construction? I just feel like every GC or foreman more specifically that I talk to is so knowledgeable about every little aspect of construction. Does that just come with time and experience? Yeah, I think there's, uh, as far as what I've seen in my company, there are a lot of engineers that get to a site and are instantly over their head and uh, are just sinking in uh, trying to drink from a fire hose on full blast uh, about construction because all of a sudden you went from really learning about construction management in school or, you know, there's there's people that come from a construction background as well, uh, like myself. But then it's a completely different ballgame when you're actually in it. Um, and each company's different. So you're learning how the company operates and about construction practices that you've never heard of before. So that that can be a real challenge. And I think a lot of people do come into a uh, the, the specifically the commercial construction field and do struggle a little bit at first. And then I think the, uh, a good quality would be to learn fast and like ask good questions and communicate well so that you do learn uh, all about what you're doing. Cool. One thing I would say in, in school, we talked a lot about engineering, right? Of course. A lot of classes about that. <laughs> they didn't talk much about communication. They didn't talk about much who we interact with per se. And that kind of blows my mind. Just, Yeah. So we had Melissa Marshall on the podcast, and she actually comes from a communication background. The university she was at said, hey, we want engineers to have more backing to this communication stuff. And so she actually went as a communication professor and started working for the Department of Engineering, or the engineering department there, uh, and started really progressing engineers' communication styles. So I come out of school, I now have to interact with architects, and then I have to deal with Contractors as well. They're Another all three, breed. All three are very separate people that have different mindsets and different goals and objectives. 
maybe the architect's trying to make the building look pretty. I'm trying to make the building stand up. As a structural engineer, you're trying to figure out how to build the building. Exactly. And you just hope we put good drawings together. So what, as a general contractor, structural engineer, what does that typically look like? Yeah, I mean, of course, you're one of the first people that we're dealing with on site because, of course, the structure comes before any of the most of the architectural design. From my uh, experience, we've developed pretty good relationships with our structural engineers. Generally, your only focus is on structure. Um, and I know that's different per project, but it's fortunate that you guys are the first ones uh, to, that we deal with. That way you get our full attention. It's awesome when we have great structural engineers on uh, both the projects I've done for Mark Young. It's been incredibly easy to like coordinate and ask good questions and RFIs are fast. And um, yeah, but I think that's all due to the amount of attention that you get in the beginning of the project. So you said RFIs there, which is perfect because that was what I was going to ask next. Right. So to me, our biggest interactions are RFIs and submittals. Mm -hmm. And then when things don't go well, of course. <laughs> Can you describe to our listeners what, how those three things, what they are and then how we interact? Yep. So RFIs, obviously, the request for information. Um, I have a question that I can't find either in the contract documents, in the specs, and I can't just come up with a solution on my own. Or I need to change something and it's going to cost something and I need a document, an official contract document that says, like, can I change this? And this is why I needed to change it. This is why I'm going to need money. I'm sure that leads into another budget question. But submittals, um, of course, everything that we get on site, um, I need to review myself, then send off to the proper party to be reviewed as well. Uh, and I actually love the submittal process because when I don't see something and somebody else catches it and it affects the whole project, I would way rather have that happen than find out on site and be scrambling for a solution if we can get a submittal right, I can probably save five RFIs about that topic um, just with a good submittal review. So, but of course, that uh, it can be strange with submittal sometimes because um, again, you're early on in the project, so you don't always know like how this is going to affect it. A lot of people, myself included, are really visual, and so when I see a submittal for bollards or like stairs that I can't like see where they go yet, and even though they're on the plans or whatever, I might not fully understand that. Um, at that time. So doing a good review and fully understanding all that is really, really crucial for us. Um, as well as submittals mean we can tell the contractor to go and procure their, their materials or, or fabrication or whatever. Um, so it's a huge schedule item. Of course, schedule is directly tied in with money as well. Um, but if we can get submittals right and uh, get things pushed through, uh, just sets up the whole project for success. I've got a schedule question. When you start a project, is there a date that you promise you will deliver the building by? Is there some contingency built into that? And is there a penalty for going over or any perks for being ahead? Yeah, that's a great question. So each contract is, of course, different. Um, but generally, we do promise a substantial completion date when uh, all of our permits would be filled and completed. All of our inspections would be done and the building is safe to move into not under construction anymore. Uh, that doesn't mean we're 100% complete, but that does mean that the owner can start using their building for what they intended it for. Or I think structures are a little bit different, uh, like bridges and civil structures, um, but that's a kind of a different department as a, at a whole different GC. So the schedule is promised. Um, doesn't mean it's like non-elastic. So we definitely have some flexibility in most of our contracts because things happen. Um, COVID sweeps the nation and materials <laughs> and everything costs five times as much. And we like to work with good relationships. And uh, generally with a good relationship, we can uh, adjust the schedule as needed. Uh, but generally, that that's a really big red flag. If you have to adjust your schedule, something is probably wrong. Um, and you hope that that's out of your control and that you can kind of write it off as an excuse. But sometimes it is a general like problem that happened on site that runs you late. So... Do you get input from all the subconsultants on the schedule as well? I have to imagine you can't possibly have everyone selected at that point. Or do you tell them the schedule that they need to meet and they give you a cost that reflects that timeline? Yeah, ideally you would reach out to every sub, but of course sometimes we're already building the building and the building or our project is still out for bid. Yeah. So we don't have all of our contractors nailed down. That's not always the case, but in a lot of the like situations we deal with, 
the uh, um, we have three or four different contractors all like competing for the same scope. Um, and so it's really hard to reach out to each of them and ask them what duration they're going to take on the project. Um, so that's where we look at like critical path of a schedule and say, you know, what is absolutely critical and the other stuff that isn't going to affect our end date, where does that line up? Uh, so we pretty much at the beginning of the project build a critical path schedule that says these are the things that need to happen by this date. And so that gives us a smaller list of subs to go out to and ask and, and really nail down how long they're going to be on site, what we can move in as they're working, uh, and then build the schedule around those critical items. Prior to getting out on site, who is putting that schedule together? How does that get inter interaction from you as time moves forward? Right. So fortunately, we have a pre-construction manager that also shares duties of scheduling before a job is out uh, in the field with the project manager that would be taking on that job. So between those two, generally, they are building the initial schedule uh, really to build the schedule to build the contract with the owner to promise an end date. So really that schedule, by the time usually an engineer or superintendent gets on a project, we are handed a set of plans, a set of specs, and an end date and say, here's day one, make it happen. And then from there, we go into meetings or straight into construction. Oftentimes, uh, it's, it's really hard to end one project and start another project seamlessly. So if there's buffer time in between, maybe you can research your project before it starts. But oftentimes, you're pulled from one project as another project is starting. Um, so you don't have that time. So it's a matter of getting with uh, the, the design team um, or development team, whatever you want to call it, and uh, figuring out how you're going to achieve your goals uh, that moment. So with the schedule, it sounds like almost being like the most important piece of the whole entire project. How much, how much time would you say goes into putting that schedule together prior to you getting on site? Wow, that's a yeah, that's an interesting question. That's another job by job thing. A grocery store, for example, um, they usually tell you the schedule. They need it done by now. Or a school, obviously, like a lot of school construction happens over the summer, and then. Well, kids are back in school middle of August, so it's time to have it open. So oftentimes that's where the schedule comes from. Like there are two people in the office can sit down and look at a project and a good estimator can give them reasonable dates. And then the project manager who should likely have seen a ton of projects and then anybody like a pre-construction manager or a, a, a consultant that you hired from outside, I bet they can figure out a schedule for most projects in a day. So as crazy as that might sound. Wow. It really does. Yeah, I'm still like hung up on this. Like how, so do you have a book that tells you regular foundations should take this much time per foot and maybe piers or mats or whatever take another amount of time per some volume? You're obviously sitting in a building right now. Are you able to guess the time it took to build it? It's like a, a very specific superpower. I mean, so what's crazy is that our, our estimating team and guys have been doing this a while. They really can. They can look at a plan and in like 10 minutes, they can tell you just from previous experience about like probably down to the maybe like 5% of what it's actually going to cost in a dollar amount and a schedule to get it done. It, it's amazing to watch a really good estimator or somebody that's been in the industry for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, just look at a project and go, yep, this is what we're going to need. And the book you refer to could very well be assembled because of all your previous experience. And so, of course, it, like you should be saving records as a GC to say every single job, what did we do here? How much did it cost? That way you have unit costs for things, square foot costs, like installed. You just know what it's going to cost. You can know like how aggressive your number is or whatever, but that's how a good estimating department should run. I think you've just blown away Max and I. I, would, I was waiting for you to say it took a month to put a schedule together, oh, like solid and, and to get you know, the money figured out and stuff. So it takes a month to get subcontractors. That's the hard part. General like scope of the building. Like we have, we've done it. Heck we do it 80 times a year or something. So like you, we're pretty good at that part, but you know, the, and, and other companies do it 800 times a year. Cue it. I couldn't imagine a massive, yeah. I'm yeah. sure their estimating apartment like it is so well oiled and refined. They can just look at something uh, and know exactly what it's going to cost. So, uh, but anybody should be keeping records so that you have this giant book of reference. 
in your opinion, what makes a good, let's say, structural engineer, but in, engineer for, for you? Yeah, for me, I just want clarity. Um, and I want like navigation of documents. That's that's really huge for us because I, I just want to see really a, a plan view. This is pretty specific, but I want a plan view with call outs everywhere. And I just want to see like all the detail pages about like what you want where. And it's really, really nice if there's something like fairly weird, if we have a couple angles on it, or if there's a connection that's strange, if it's called out nice and clear, it really like clarity and like ease of navigation around the drawings. So I, I really kind of, I feel for structural engineers because you guys get this plan. Like I want my building to look like this. And then you pretty much have to make it happen somehow. And you're just kind of like, it's kind of like barfed on. And then you just, you just scramble to try and like put a, a skeleton to it somehow. So it, it's, it's cool. You guys are able to do that. That's really all I could ask for. Of course, like, because you guys have your requirements that you're going to need to meet, uh, but that's like what I want you guys to deal with. I don't want to have to deal with like, you know, loads and charts and that kind of stuff. That's not my job, but I just want to trust that all that's done, but tell me like exactly how to do it and get me there in an easy way. I'm curious, since you sort of mentioned it, I think engineers have really strong opinions about how we think drawings should look based on how we think other people will interpret them. And none of us have ever built anything bigger than an Ikea desk. This could be like every note should be a number in a bubble pointing to a thing with a schedule on the side, like if you work with Zach. Or everything should be a detail cut to another sheet or to a schedule or big paragraphs everywhere. You see what I'm getting at. Is there a preference that you think most builders have for how they want to see drawings? Or I'll make it easier for you. Would you rather have really sparse, clean drawings, but every piece of information has a link to another sheet or really dense drawings covered in notes and tags? Yeah. So I'm, that's a, that's a good question. I am like a visual person. So believe it or not, I would rather have like a, a completely messy plan view, but have links to everything. Yep. And then, but that way I can remember like, and I, I think that other GCs work like this. Like we don't like to read. We just like to look at a picture and go like, okay, I get it. And uh, that's like, that's at least my favorite way of retaining information just because I can remember the picture. Um, but the, uh, then I, then I want to go reference the detail. Let's say I'm, I'm listening to this podcast. I'm fresh out of school, maybe still in school thinking about getting my first job and I'm going to start my first job and I'm going to interact with architects probably initially. And then I'm going to interact with you, right. As a contractor, what should I do to make your job easier? So and you're saying you're coming out of school to be an engineer, like a structural, structural engineer. engineer. Yeah. And I now have to interact with you. What can I do? What, you know, what that makes your job easier? Yeah. Beyond, beyond drawings. Um, speed. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. Of course, we're trying to maintain the schedule and there's this weird thing that contractors do. And it, it seems to be with everybody. You come out of the gate and you're just gung ho. You want to get ahead of schedule if you can. And you want to like beat your deadlines and everything in the beginning, of course, that's when you're dealing with structural engineers generally. Um, so if you can turn around submittals and turn around RFIs, that's like golden. That relationship, if you guys are, a, if you if you uh, look at each other as a priority, that is all I could ask for. And clarity of details. Uh, the other thing, this is a this is back to money. I, I'm sure we'll talk about this. But if you can design something and make it cheap. Like value engineering, that is also awesome. If we have to change something and it's less expensive than it was, that would, that would be a miracle. So, or if it has to be more expensive, it's got to be stronger, we broke something, we need to fix it, and it's going to cost money, whatever it is. Like You can make it as cheap as possible and do it as fast as possible. That's awesome. Of course, that's a tall order. So uh, good communication and good relationships generally help that a lot. Um, and Wow, if you make my life easy, I will try to make your life easy by asking a good question, making sure it's not a stupid question, like and, and just being like upfront with you guys and not like going around the bush about what happened or what I need, just being very direct and saying, even if we screwed something up, we welded something in the wrong spot, our guys ran something over, it doesn't really matter. Like I, I really like the idea of let's fix the problem, not like worry about the problem. I want to, I want to get to fixing it. So, um, but it's, I also like to say if I can give like my 5% extra 
to fully explain and to get a picture and to mark up the picture. If I can do that, generally I can get it turned around faster and keep on schedule and whatnot. And same thing with a submittal review that I'm kind of talking on RFIs, but if I do a really good job of submittal reviews, ask all the questions I need, um, then you don't have to review the drawings nearly as much because I've asked everything I need to know. Since you brought budget back up, I've got another question in that realm I wanted to ask. Let's say the engineer wants to make some changes after construction documents, like they decide a beam should be a little bigger and needs more studs or some structural change that costs money. Is there any wiggle room typically built in for these things? Yeah, so that question is also who hired you? Um, is, is the contractor paying your checks? Is the, did the architect hire you? Did the like, owner hire you directly? So generally, we like to do our jobs as a CMGC or a guaranteed maximum price or design builds. Those are becoming more and more common. So generally, I'm the one, the contractor, is going to endure this cost. In that case, if, if I'm the one writing your checks and there was a, a mistake in the drawings, um, oh gosh, I, uh, I, I've never seen where a contractor like charges the engineer but I suppose on paper, that is like the, the right thing to happen. Uh, that's where we usually have a contingency amount, um, an allowance that the owner really gets to finance with the bank, but then can use um, for problems that come up or to add things on the job. So hopefully that's a, a scenario where we could use it for that. Um, if not, I as the contractor, I'm, I'm probably going to eat that cost because I want to save my relationship with you guys. Uh, but I would love for something like that just to get thrown into a contingency amount and say, sorry, this got messed up. Here's how we're going to fix it. And really, we have a plan to fix it. We have this like nest egg that gets to live there to uh, mm -hmm. fix it. So. Yeah, the scenario I always hear is at what time in the project did that occur? Did, have you built the steel column and it's wrong? Now you got to put a new steel column in because now you've already secured work and finished the work. And now you're going back to do it. Or, you know, if I give you a construction set of documents and I change the column in the submittal review, you procured nothing, right? That the cost of that column had to be there, period. Right. So it's like there is no cost different because the building needed what the building needed and no work has been performed. Right. So I've always heard that kind of thought of like, where are we in the process? The building needs what it needs. It, so it was going to cost the six by six. Anyways, regardless. Yeah. But if you're tearing stuff out, a whole, whole different question. Yep. Thing, and so. that's really where submittal reviews will save you money if they're done right. Um, but in the situation where you needed extra steel for something or extra concrete or whatever it is, extra rebar um, that you would hopefully catch in submittals. But you're right. It would absolutely be a requirement from the beginning. So it's hard to deny that cost. Um, that's where you could look at the structural engineer with your hands up saying, why didn't you guys figure this out earlier? Which is a tough position for you guys to be in because of course you're human, nobody's perfect over there either. So I, I definitely feel that one, that's a tough one. How do you deal with costs and uh, schedule? Yeah, so um, I deal with costs only pretty much tracking them. Um, the decisions are left for uh, other other like parties, be it upper management in your company or decisions presented to ownership. So. I'm more of the, again, the communicator on the project. So I will like take an added cost or a deduct or a deduct. Um, and then I will like put that into an explanation and say, this is why that needs to change and then send it out to whoever needs to see it. Uh, occasionally we will talk to in, internally in our company that says, Hey, what do we do with this cost? What do we do with this cost? And, and I'm speaking more to ads and deducts changes basically. Um, but generally, uh, I have permissions and authority to uh, like vet them, make sure they make sense, make sure numbers add up, it's a reasonable cost, and then I have authority to uh, like ask for them to be changed, but I have no decision making. So that's if something's changed. Now, if I have like an allowance in my budget, because of course I have a budget in front of me that has a bunch of different things and generally will carry... Uh, kind of safety nets for different items. Steel is really common. Um, unfamiliar waters, like if you have a sub that you aren't so familiar with the process of, um, like tilt-up concrete, that's an awesome example because that's not every day you're doing a tilt-up project. Um, we'll carry an allowance in there um, that then I would get to decide on that money. So if it's money that we control, 
that's not an add or deduct or change rather, uh, then I can decide like I need extra rebar. Well, I can just go buy extra rebar. Um, but then again, I have to track all that. Um, so that's kind of the two places. Dollar amounts matter too. Of course, if something is like $500, well, the engineer is generally allowed to make a decision with that money. But if it's five grand, 10 grand, they could be $50,000. Uh, the more people that are going to be interested in that uh, amount of money for whatever the, the it's needed for. Yeah, I like that you said when you're maybe working with a sub you haven't worked with before, like a, a new item that you haven't, you'll put a little extra in there because of all that. Yep. You know, it, I think about it often, Max, like with, with trying to put budgets together for construction administration kind of phase of our projects is not only do I really hope the GC is good, but I hope the subcontractors you pick are really good because the worse they are, the more our buys I get. Right. And That's I can't really put a budget together on... I don't know if you're going to eat who, what sub you're going to use, whether you're comfortable with them or not, or if they're good, or if they've ever done the work, or maybe there's their first project ever. Yeah. And I'm going to get 50 RFIs. It often, you know, a lot is constitutes a change order from us to the, you know, to you right. guys or to the owner or to the architect who we're contracted through potentially. Um, but I think it's interesting that you guys have that opportunity to kind of use that number. We do. Now we got to be careful about that because generally we are very open with our uh, fi- with our whole budget, which is a little bit foreign to me. I, I well, Zach, you know this. I have a background in in sales, uh, specifically like motorcycle and power sports sales, with some car sales in there. And it's funny how different industries, like in the in the, in the like hard sales world, you don't let anybody know how much money you're making. That's a complete secret. Like. Why would I tell my customer that I just made a thousand bucks off of them or five grand or whatever it is? Whereas in construction, I, I give you a straight up like a, a schedule of values that says this is every penny of everything that this is going to cost, including my profit and my fee and whatever else I have in here. I'm just going to give that to you completely open, no hidden stuff. Uh, but that does mean that everything we do is viewable. So if I need more rebar and I say like, well, I needed an extra, if I use my dumpster money for rebar, there's going to be some red flags. Um, yeah. Now, if you have a good relationship with your client, sometimes you can get away with that kind of stuff. But generally, like, well, why are you using dumpster money for rebar? You didn't bid enough like money for rebar and all like, that's what makes us start to look bad. Uh, and that can get shady in a hurry. Why do you think it is so open? You mentioned there's a contrast there. Why does construction choose this route? I think it has to be at this point. Um, I think it builds trust. I think that um, it's such a larger scale of money that it would just not make any sense if you hid how much you're making. Now, in, in a like hard bid job, uh, you might very well, you just say, we will do this job for X amount of dollars, and you do kind of hide that money, uh, which is fine. But then again, you're completely up to, like, that's the amount usually. There's no like changes unless they really want to add something to whatever it is. So I think, like, it's fair that way. Everybody is on the same page. Um, I don't know. It just kind of works out. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm pretty jealous of that. I, I often talk to clients and try to set up something like that, like, let's do cost plus profit. Sure. And it, it's always turned down because when we get a lump sum fee, the risk is on us. Do right. we choose the right fee or not? And it's often very weird conversations of like, here's what I'm thinking. And they're like, ah, oh, okay, perfect. Or they'll go, and we talk to someone else and they'll do it for cheaper. And it's, I, I, you know, I wish we could just chase projects with, with, uh, you know, with clients saying, you know, here's our resume, here's what we're, how, what we're good at, you know, and have the relationships and say, all we're trying to do is make X amount of profit. Right. We're just trying to be fair on the business. Right. I hate that there's always this game of taking your best guess at a fee and then likely someone's going to just potentially just undercut you for the fun of it. Right. You know, and I, I don't know. I, I wish I, I wish and I really hope that as we push forward as a you know construction industry that engineers also start working on that basis, because I would I would enjoy that greatly. I really uh, that would come down to uh, like relationships. Will somebody pay? to have a good relationship with somebody and then will they trust them that you're not going to, you know, absolutely charge them unreasonably. So if you can build that relationship, even with people that you do work with, you can start to do that. But in the, like 
in, in kind of the jungle of estimating and whatnot, somebody's going to raise their hand and say they can do it cheaper. And it's amazing how when a company that's looking at a multi-million dollar project, they'll save like five grand if they can. And it's hard to tell somebody at the beginning of a project that it's hard to sell your value compared to somebody else, even for such a minuscule percentage amount on your whole project. It, that still blows my mind. And I think it will, the goal for me would be to get to a point where relationships are worth more than that like cutthroat bid. I, I learned this the other day, and this blew my mind. It, it took many years to understand this. Um, and I don't recall if this was on the podcast or a conversation we had, Max, but um, the, the money that consultants are paid with typically comes out of the owner's pocket because construction is all is all from a loan for, for the majority right. of all it's insurance. bank yeah so early on and, and this makes so like things made so much sense to me when people start tracking like okay you know let's say hypothetically i'm giving a two hundred thousand dollar fee and someone says i'll do it for 180 i'm like well twenty thousand dollars the project's going to be 12 million like that makes 20 you know that makes no sense right like your five thousand dollar example but then when someone said consoles are paid from the owner's pocket things started making a lot of sense. And so it's like personally out of their pocket paying me, they really care about every thousand dollars right. that is there. So I, I think it's interesting of like, maybe in the future engineers get paid from the construction side of things or how that interaction could work better. Um, I, and I don't think, I don't know many engineers that are greedy or trying to chase, you know, like too much, but I feel like contractors often have their, you know, the open books. Here's a percent of profit we're looking to, and they probably, I would presume, and this is an interesting question. I presume they usually make that. Where engineers are like, I'm going to hope to make 15%, and it's a full guess by the end of the project. What do you guys see the contractor architect relationship like? I mean, if like in the day to day, you think there's things going like behind the scene. I, I don't know. I, I'm just curious, an, an engineer's perspective on the relationship between the architecture and the contractor. I, I see it as you and the architectures whispering sweet nothings to the, the owner, oh, putting the structural engineer under the bus at all <laughs> all times. Like, why is that counter a weird shape? Well, structural engineer. <laughs> oh gosh. Put a damn column in the middle of the counter. Right. Now, why didn't you put the counter somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, that's a, that's mean, a great question. That's I, a very good question. I have no idea. I. We're like so out of that loop. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the answer that it really doesn't matter. To, so. to me, the in the construction phase, what I what I would perceive the you and the architect are doing the most is figuring out the pieces that in the construction documents that aren't feasible to build, and you're coming up with solutions. And the architect sees the picture holistically from all contractor like. All, the electrical engineer, the mechanical engineer, the fire, the you know structural engineer, and you and them are working together to solve those problems of maybe coordination interference and hey you know this isn't going to fit here because there's a column. What's the solution to that? So that's usually what I would think, and then they're you know that's more answering RFIs and stuff. But right, you know obviously they have their own line of submittals that are non-structural that they're also reviewing. I see an architect too a lot of times is the owner's rep. And oftentimes they are, if, if a project does not have a proper owner's rep, they are the, the like line of defense to the owner. And they are definitely more related to the owner than the contractor certainly is, and certainly the engineer. I mean, I, I feel bad for you guys that you really don't get to have these relationships with the owner. And maybe you don't want to, but um, it's, a, it's a different level of, like, you get to explain yourself of why you did the things you did and say... And kind of like stand up for yourself when something is uh, maybe problematic. Like, well, we had to do this because your building would fall down otherwise. So you guys never really get that voice. Um, and so hopefully as a contractor, I hope to be that voice for you at some level. Uh, or the architect can likely do that if they're on your team per se. <laughs> I I somehow often forget that a contractor uh, talks with the architect all the time. Because uh, in my head, like the building is the structure and then everything else is not that important. Do you end up talking to the architect more than you talk to the engineers overall? Absolutely. I, I bet I talk to an architect every day or interact with them every day. If not, it's like four times out of five days. So oh, wow. whereas you guys are maybe during the beginning, 
maybe like once or twice a week. And then, of course, as the project moves away from structure, of course, you guys just aren't relevant anymore. Yeah. So. We're relevant, just somewhere else. Yeah, until they're putting out special pieces and the structure is interfering with it. Right. And they were very relevant very quickly yeah. to a lot of people. Because all of a sudden we want to start chopping things and that's not always okay. <laughs> How do you get everything so accurate? How do you coordinate with a surveyor to get everything so accurate? Gee, you give them more money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... In most of our projects, we actually ask the surveyor to take uh, extra money because we know stakes are going to get messed up, run over, lost, used as swords by kids. Like it's just you never know. Uh, the other thing is we've actually had surveyors be off by quite a bit, and so uh, just knowing that we're going to have to call them back out. Generally, surveying on a job is usually not expensive. Um, I don't know why surveyors don't pay or don't charge more it must be extremely competitive because i, I feel like on a multi-million dollar project like surveying they're not even asking for 20 grand and i have to give them five extra thousand to come out and restake some stuff multiple times so um but we also use surveying for way more than just like edges and like building corners we'll use them to find things that we've buried in a slab we'll use them to like uh, find anything underground that we need um, we'll like lay out just about anything and we can of course call the surveyor out. So um, I really like surveyors. I, I think they do, they add a lot more value than what they charge. Uh, and generally they're like a phone call away, which is awesome. So yeah, but I would say pay your surveyor well because <laughs> that's the case. Um, is there a greater emphasis on cost overrun contingencies? So, and I think that question is saying for like a contingency allowance that's been used all the way up. Um, generally, our projects, we always go into a contingency project with the intention of giving money back at the end. Of course, that's what contingency is. You get this extra loan from the bank for whatever amount. It could be a percentage. It could just be a flat cost. Um, we always go into it intending to give it back. Um, we usually, gosh. Sometimes uh, an owner or somebody will use that contingency for all their like heart's desires on the project. If they want to add as many things as they want, that's what it's there for. Go for it. Um, others have been extremely flexible and saying like, hey, you've got this problem. We'll fix it using contingency. Um, and then others hold on to it as tight as they can because they know that that's a, an amount that's coming back to them. And so they could use it for initial payments on the building or the improvements after construction. Um, sometimes they want to add <clears throat> things that don't have anything to do with construction, like they want brand new appliances through the whole building. And so they'll, they'll save something for that contingency to use it that way. Um, but as far as overrunning a contingency, generally, I think that the amounts are large enough, uh, intentionally large enough to cover that, uh, so that that doesn't happen. Now it definitely can. And when it does, I've never run into that, but that has got to be rough because then every cent is coming out of the owner's pocket. Um, so hopefully that's not because of problems. It's one thing if it happened because there was a bunch of things added or changed, but it's another thing if it was all problems that had to be made up. So um, that would be unfortunate. All right. This question I'm going to read right off the list we made, but I like this one a lot. How have the significant material shortages and cost increases of the past two years affected the way you generate proposals and write contracts? Yeah, you know, uh, our proposals really come from our subcontracts. And right now we are seeing escalation clauses like crazy. Um, prices are only good for 24 hours. Um, it's insane. Estimating right now is incredibly difficult. And that is across the board. Um, so especially things that are absolutely non-negotiable required and i've got to have them by an extremely specific date like steel or concrete um, if those are either delayed or cost a whole bunch of money that is really going to put my project in jeopardy um, as far as our schedule and our budget goes it can absolutely blow it um, so that is where communication and promptness come into play like we have to be all over that stuff um, because it could really delay your project. And generally knowing that, that you have an escalation or you have delays or something um, or lack of materials, you start to plan your entire uh, project around that piece. Uh, we talked about critical schedule earlier. Uh, that becomes like, 
top dog critical schedule. So you really just got to focus on it 100%. Uh, fortunately, I don't think it's the entire scope. Um, I can still get bathroom accessories and I can like tile hasn't been a big deal. Um, but things like metals and even concrete, there's been like, we can't get drivers or we can't get pea gravel or something. So that's been tough. It just requires extra focus and extra promptness. How do you guys generally find clients? Is this responding to public RFPs or building up relationships with developers, referrals, or do owners just look you up online and give you a call? Yeah, I mean, professional relationship building is a pretty wide topic, but generally uh, different contractors will, or different uh, general contractors will somewhat specialize. And especially in our company, we have, I think, five different project managers that each almost have their own specialty. Um, right now, my project manager has done a lot of municipality buildings and industrial buildings, as well as like grocery stores. Our company is pretty well known for grocery department and uh, in that kind of retail. So we will pursue relationships with customers um, generally for return work. Uh, we will work extremely hard um, to find people that we think we could uh, provide a good product for and then uh, really try hard to build that relationship with them, be it taking them to golf or like, you know, going fishing or something, it's amazing. Like the little things can actually like build a huge relationship. So, um, but specializing also opens you up to different internet avenues. Like, um, there's grocery store bid websites, there's municipality bid websites, there's, um, obviously government work that you can chase. That's all posted on uh, different sites or boards. Um, but generally most of our work comes from return business, repeat business. And that is from building relationships. Um, like I said, our our upper management, president, CEO, CFO, uh, project managers, the the like top dogs in our company are all constantly chasing relationships um, and just asking around. It's it's amazing how word of mouth is still uh, such a good avenue for relationships uh, and work procurement. So that's really kind of the way we do it. So co coming to the end here, um, kind of way to close this out. What do you? What do you wish more engineers knew or what questions have we, ha have we not asked you that you want to share? It would be awesome to like, well, have you guys out on site more. And I know that's a, that's a tall order, but when we have field conditions and they're sometimes really hard to explain uh, or even with a picture um, or they're so like big that they're hard to like encompass in a picture. So if you guys we're somehow able to keep eyes on the site and keep up with where we're at in the construction process. That would be like the only thing I could ask more of. Um, it's, it's just part of being on the same page as everybody in the like whole process. Uh, and so that can be done. It doesn't need to be site visits, I suppose. Pictures. Uh, we're, we're a huge picture company. I think if we average a hundred pictures a week, uh, which is to, uh, yeah. Um, just give everybody a, a, a sense of where we're at and what is going on on the project. Um, but that way I could say, Hey, that concrete wall or this beam or this column or this footer has a problem and you can kind of already jump to it in your head um, and save time and save effort just to know what's going on. I have an idea that I've always been interested in getting started. I'm curious what you think of this. I'd really like to set up a program with a contractor or GC local to me and have them take on a newer engineer, someone with just a couple years of experience for like a week. Have them sit along in the trailer, see what you guys go through every day, and hopefully that will help us learn how to help you better and provide better drawings. This would be like a one-week job exchange program. The engineer is still getting paid by the engineering firm. We're just there to learn from you. I think that's a great idea. I would encourage input from them as well. I mean, there's things that an engineer would have learned in school or within a couple months of working there that as we're reviewing a plan or as we're like walking a site, say, hey, well, this is why we did this here or look at this detail. Do you see how this like re relates with this? That would be monumental. And I think it would be a great perspective for any engineer to spend enough time with a contractor to really see like, what our job is. Um, and how general it is. So awesome idea. I'm gonna try to do it. I we we brought it up a while ago, and then it kind of went down the wayside. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try to bring it back. 
The only thing I'd have to say is that you, it, there would have to be a balance of observation versus input. Like, of course, you wouldn't want to get in the way, um, which it would be pretty hard. It depends on the job. Some are very fast paced. Um, and so it might even be hard for an engineer, a, a new green engineer, to even keep track of what's going on. You'd just be so overloaded. But on the right project, which is most of them, I don't think most of them in the beginning are all that crazy when structure is going up. Um, but no, that's an awesome idea. If you can align everything to make that happen, absolutely, it's worth it. Cool. Yeah, and, and to kind of finish off all those thoughts, I, I think as young engineers are coming out of school or, or second year of engineering school, third year of engineering school, you know, engineering firms don't necessarily want to have them as an intern. I, I think there's almost more value, in my opinion, especially with hiring, looking at a, a young engineer out of school's resume, and it shows they work for a GC, they went and poured concrete. They went. They went and did carpentry. Like so, anyone listening that is trying to get an engineering internship, and people are saying you're not there yet, I would say it's you're going to almost bring more value to a future employer by actually going out and building something for somebody. And even if that's a minimum wage job, pouring concrete, I think you're going to learn so much from those those trades and that skill that you can take into your career at, at a later date. Yeah. So I, yeah, I often hear people saying, I, I can't get an internship, I don't have enough experience. And I think go work for a fabricator. I think that's way more than an engineering internship would ever bring you. Um, so. and, and often pays more. I mean, if you're doing something cool. Like. It's true. Yeah, I mean, and help is so hard to find right now that people are paying for interns and, and general labor alike. So no, it would be, if you knew how hard four slump concrete would be to work with, you you'd understand why we want to add water on site and make it six. Like, yep. No, we'll uh, we'll find a balance somewhere in the middle. So, but no, I, that's an awesome idea, and I think that any hands-on experience for for the right person is is absolutely monumental in your your whole view to look at it from multiple angles. Um, so that's man, like yeah, that's a great idea, um, and to make money doing it, and I would hope that. An engineering firm would value that time that you've spent on a site, like learning it um, hands-on, and then be able to uh, relate that into your everyday work as an engineer. I, I, if somebody values that, which they absolutely should, uh, that yeah, monumental. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today. I I think Max and I could probably ask you questions for the next few hours. So. I'm sure. Well, we could do it again if you want. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. We're definitely doing it again. Uh, <laughs> Really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to uh, doing it again. No, yeah, great to uh, talk with you guys about engineering and construction, and uh, hopefully we can do it again. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the episode. Let us know if you have any questions by reaching out to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or email. You can find those links and more information about this specific episode in the show notes below. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.